0: For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC.
1: This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
0: It is Wednesday, August 30th. We've done a lot of depressing episodes of this show lately, but today it's a more optimistic conversation, at least a little bit, with one of the more low-key powerful people in Hollywood. A big winner of the summer box office, and the year so far actually, is IMAX. The large format film technology company started the year with Avatar 2, which did more than $250 million of its $2.3 billion in IMAX theaters alone. And it's pretty consistently outperformed the box office as a whole. I've said this often on this show, but as we all watch more movies at home and movie going becomes a more premium and niche experience, we're looking for events. And that's often IMAX. In fact, the problem this summer has often been not enough IMAX and large format screens for all the movies that want them. I wrote earlier this year in my Puck newsletter that Tom Cruise was upset because just nine days after Mission Impossible premiered, the IMAX CEO, Rich Gelfand, had committed all of its screens to this three-hour biopic called Oppenheimer. That was because Chris Nolan was a big supporter of the format and had agreed to shoot the film with IMAX cameras. It seemed like money was going to be left on the table, but obviously Oppenheimer is now at $154 million and counting on IMAX screens alone, and almost 30% of the gross for that movie in the U.S. is coming from IMAX, an amazing number. It opens today in China. That's a huge endorsement for the format and for Gelfand's growth strategy. He's now got 1,700 theaters in the U.S., both IMAX theaters and licensed. They're heavily invested in China. The local language films there are driving box office. The company's stock has doubled since the depth of the pandemic, though it's still below pre-COVID times. But it's not all positive news. Obviously, the strike is a big problem for IMAX, with the studios delaying films like Dune Part 2, which was slated to be a big IMAX film this fall, and a bunch of movies in the spring and summer still with big question marks on that. So today it's Rich Gelfand, the big year for IMAX, the challenges, who might want to buy the company, and the future of the movie-going experience. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellamy, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Rich Gelfand, the CEO of IMAX. Welcome, Rich. Great to be here, Matt. Nice to see you. All right, so you've got Oppenheimer opened in China last night. What are your expectations there?
1: China's been a very hard place to predict all year, as you know. Yeah. In general, local language films have done really well um, Hollywood films haven't done so well with the exception of the Meg which recently did pretty well <laughs> the Chinese love giant sharks oh I love them too I mean awesome. <laughs> but you know I'm somewhat optimistic I was surprised that Oppenheimer got into China in the first place I mean there's a lot of discussion in the movie obviously about the Communist Party and I wasn't sure how that would play out so I would have given it much less than 50-50 of getting in. But now that it's gotten in, the previews went very well. Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas went over there. Right. They made a big splash. They were the first real talent since Jim Cameron went over there for Avatar. And there was a lot of publicity. Yan does a prediction for what the movie's going to do overall. And they've said now that they think it's going to do about $50 million over the run in China. In total box office, not, uh, not just IMAX. In total box
0: office. Yeah. Right? How does that, how would that translate into IMAX box office?
1: You know, on this one, I think we're going to do a pretty big percentage. Um, the previews were Tuesday night and we did 70% of the previews. Wow. And were 70% of the pre-sales. Now there's no way we're going to do 70%, but of the movie overall, if you look in, um, globally, we're about 20% of the movie and uh, in North America, we're close to 30% of the movie. So if asked you ask me to just take a guess, I'd guess towards the 30% range, and that would be great if it turned out that way. But the one certainty in China this year is everything you think is going to happen is not going to happen.
0: Right, right. Those numbers you just threw out are pretty remarkable for this movie. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, the fact that Oppenheimer is getting close to 30% of the North American box office. And what is the footprint of total theaters? What percentage of total theaters are IMAX in North America?
1: It's 400, so about 1%. And in the world, we're about eight-tenths of 1%. So 1% of
0: the theaters in North America is delivering nearly 30% of the box office on this movie. That is extraordinary. And especially on the kind of movie that, I would not have expected to be a IMAX driven film. I mean, yes, there's a spectacular bomb sequence, but most of the movie is quiet dudes in rooms talking. And I remember you and I talked about this movie earlier this year and you had put all your horses in this barn. You have a long-standing deal. With Chris Nolan, he's basically a brand ambassador for you guys. He agreed to shoot the movie with IMAX cameras and you gave him these weeks of exclusivity in the summer. And I think a lot of people heading into the summer thought, wait a second, what is IMAX doing? They've got Mission Impossible sitting there and they're only giving it nine days of IMAX. And then this three hour biopic is going to take over all the screens. We know Tom Cruise was not thrilled with that either. What made you kind of think that this was the horse to bet on?
1: Well, I mean, I work with Chris for probably two decades. I know him really well. Like you said, he's an amazing brand ambassador. I think he understands how to promote both the IMAX brand and his movies and the synergies in those areas as well as anyone in the world you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but one lesson I learned is don't bet against Chris Nolan. And I didn't, I have to tell you though, that I think this movie will get close to 170, 175 in IMAX alone. Mm -hmm. And that's about three times what we budgeted. So I don't want to pretend to be as, as smart as I look right now. You know, (laughs) Hollywood could really make one look very smart or very stupid. So Chris showed me the movie in New York and I was blown away when I saw it. I read the book. He asked me to read it, I don't know, 18 months ago. And it's about 600 pages with about that many footnotes. And I was thinking, you know, how's he going to turn this into an IMAX movie? And I won't say, you know, I wasn't a little bit worried when I saw it. Once I I saw it, I thought, oh my God, he really, you know, he did it. And I obviously like all of his movies, but this one I thought was particularly brilliant. I think what he did was he showed IMAX could be for a lot more than big visual sequences. Although right. you said the bomb or the New Mexico scenes are fantastic, but the close up and the acting of Robert Downey Jr. and Emily Blunt and all of them comes across as amazing. I think our faith was rewarded and then some. So
0: the downside was, obviously, Mission Impossible did not get those screens. Would you ever consider putting Mission 7 back in IMAX theaters this fall? We'll talk a little bit about the delays in some of the other movies, but if there are holes, I feel like people might rediscover it in IMAX.
1: I think we would consider it, Matt, but it would have to be um, as part of a campaign that Paramount put together. Because one thing we've learned in re-releases if they come with marketing and if they come with the director of the stars pushing them, you know, the audiences come back. And last year, um, for Top Gun, we had to take it off, off the screen after two weeks and we had done about $40 million and we brought it back, um, because we played Jurassic World after Jurassic World and it did another 65, but right. Paramount aggressively promoted it. So I, you know, that would be the condition for doing it to have to happen. But I spoke, actually, to Tom um, last week about MIA, and he's super excited about that, and so are we, and we're going to make sure that, you know, next time it has ample playing time in IMAX.
0: I imagine he might have some thoughts on that, and wanting to make sure that the situation doesn't repeat itself for the next one but it would juice the box office perhaps on eight if you put seven back in theaters it's a good movie and i think it got kind of subsumed by barbenheimer
1: i agree with you i like the movie a lot i was actually on set for a couple days at the end of filming of that movie but i think unfortunately it was just dated in a time where it got overwhelmed by the tsunami of barbie and oppenheimer who would have known Now, this is an interesting point
0: because directors, top directors of these big visual movies, they won't date their movies without you involved, right? I mean, you must feel like a traffic cop sometimes.
1: I was going to say even better than a traffic cop. Sometimes we feel like the most popular person at the ball. (laughs) Right. What do studios
0: do to convince you to book their movies over the other guys' movies?
1: I think it depends a lot, mostly on Relationships, so you know we have great relationships with filmmakers and talent. We have a really strong relationship with Disney and Marvel, and those are important to us and Warner Brothers. So I put that as number one would be who's the filmmaker studio talent, and what are the relationships? Then you got to look at the movie itself and how it's conceived to be in IMAX, what's the marketing plan is how is IMAX included in the marketing plan, and of course what the ultimate's going to be. Because obviously, you want to make sure you make money
0: on it. Right. And that was, I think, what people looked at in the mission situation and being like, oh, this guy's betting on the biopic, but worked out. I imagine a lot of times, you know, with all the relationship considerations and all the movies that are bunched together in the summer, you have to make some tough choices. Is there a situation that you either feel that you were vindicated on or that you regret in recent memory on
1: which movies got the IMAX and which didn't? I mean, definitely on both. If you're asking me to remember, it's not organized well enough in my in my mind. <laughs> in the last week of August, I've got kind of a little bit of a you know vacation fog going on. Sure. But it's definitely happened. But obviously, you know, right now is kind of a, a time to talk about it because we had um, Dune, which we were scheduled to play, and we had the Marvels and we had Hunger Games, and then we have Flower Moon and Scorsese. It was a little bit of an embarrassment of riches, and you couldn't please everybody. And what it came down to was who committed to you first. And that's why we committed to Dune. And now I'll let you ask your question. Well,
0: that, that obviously gets us to the question. Now, these studios are looking at pushing movies. Dune is now in the spring. I have heard that others will likely be pushed after Labor Day. How does this impact you? And do they consult with you before they do this?
1: Well, in general, they do. And we're part of the dialogue. You know, I was disappointed that Dune moved because I really i have heard great things about the movie. I know Denis Villeneuve pretty well. I've met with him about the movie, talked to Warner Brothers a lot about it. But fortunately, because we're a single screen, we have a lot of flexibility. Sure. So Dune moves, we're going to play the Marvels. We're going to play Hunger Games. We're going to give more screen time to Flower Moon than, than we could have. So it's not as big a deal as it otherwise would have. And looking into 24, we've got Dune in March, which we're really looking forward to. Well,
0: unless those movies move. I mean, do you know that they're not moving, Hunger Games and Marvels?
1: I don't know, but I don't believe they are Madden. Right, okay. You know, because these are all longstanding relationships. We talk about it a lot. So I, I don't think they're going to move.
0: Yeah. And perhaps you'll then get to stretch out some of these movies in a more fallow period, perhaps, if there's not a big
1: spring movie. You now have Dune. You know, as disappointed as I am, you go from having to choose one out of three to being able to do three out of three. So I'm not exactly crying in my basement in the fetal position.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. But Dune is a IMAX-specific phenomenon. The first one did very well and I
1: imagine that's a bummer for you. We did 22% of the global box office on on the first dune. So I think it's going to be a um, a big hit again for us. It'll just be a 24 hit and I think what we're playing now we're excited about and the fact I just read an article this morning that the fact that Dune move should increase the box office for the other films and since we're part of those other films you know, that'll be a decent result for us. As
0: we watch more at home and as film going turns into more of a premium niche experience, the brands like IMAX are poised to benefit from that. But I feel like that is more of a U.S. phenomenon. Do you feel that that is the trend globally as well, outside of the U.S. and perhaps China? Is the trend towards the more premium experiences?
1: Well, there's no question that it is because, again, our global market share is 40% higher now than it was before the pandemic. Dymax
0: Really? And you're investing. That's, you, you know, because you're investing, you're opening more.
1: Remember, we're in 90 countries. Yeah. You look at places like Japan, our per screen average is almost $2 million a screen, which is a crazy number. Korea, Even Western Europe and France, you look at the results of Oppenheimer and IMAX, it broke all kinds of records. And a lot of India, I think it was the number one film. So there's no question this move to premium. And I don't think it's just in movies. You look at concerts, look at the Taylor Swift concert and look at ticket prices or look at sports and premium seating. I think people got tired of sitting around their houses and streaming everything. And I think when they have the chance To go out and experience in the best way possible. You know, they're choosing to do that. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: So you said in an interview earlier this year that 2023 has a chance to look like 2019 in terms of your
1: global revenue. Is that still possible, even with these movies being pushed? Yeah, it is. Um, As a matter of fact, our third quarter is on track because of Oppenheimer to be Mm -hmm. one of the best third quarters we've ever had. Our first quarter was our best first quarter ever. So, and, you know, in, in, in those quarters, we're beating 2019. Of course, as you pointed out with some of the moves and it goes both ways with the momentum going on. It's so positive coming out of Barbie and Oppenheimer for theatrical. But we have to see what happens in the fourth quarter. But yeah, I think it's definitely possible that this year is as good as 19 on a global basis.
0: Do you think AMC... Will make it? Do you think they'll have to declare bankruptcy? I know they're a partner of yours, and I know you're probably rooting for them, but the economics of the traditional theatrical business is looking pretty grim, especially with these delays.
1: Well, I'm not sure if the public perceives it, but when they got the approval in Delaware to turn these ape shares into common shares and sell them to raise new capital, I think they're out of danger, you know, at least for a long time Right the now. The stock doesn't reflect that though.
0: <laughs> the AMC stock is is not doing great. The apes weren't happy with that.
1: Yeah, they're in a funny place because I think people thought they could accomplish long term survival without issuing new shares. And I think that was probably naive. But I think, you know, Adam, I called him Houdini once before.
0: Adam Aaron, the CEO. Yes.
1: I mm. think he's really pulled it off this time, and I, I think they will survive.
0: But if the new reality of Movie going is 20 to 25% less than what was the reality in 2018, 2019. How do these
1: companies survive? Well, I think they have to right size themselves, Matt.
0: Meaning closed theaters?
1: Yeah, I think they have to close theaters, have to pay back their debt. Maybe they have to do equity for debt exchanges to buy some of their debt in. They've got to lower their fixed costs on the, you know, IMAX, which is an asset light company we license our technology we don't own theaters we don't have leases right. we don't have that debt i mean it's been good to us and um, you know that's why we're doing so well right now
0: well one thing they would like is for there to be more IMAXs in their theaters so how do you make that happen
1: the problem for them is that we have exclusivity zones so mm-hmm. in a way it's analogous to like a franchise because sure you want to have one across the street On the other, it's higher ticket price and it's um, limited capacity. So you can't have too many of them. I wish I could have more, but there's still a lot of room for us to grow. I was going to say, there's, I
0: mean, you have these people crossing state lines to see Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter IMAX. To me, that says one thing create more theaters with 70 millimeter IMAX.
1: So this year, Matt, we've already had 87 signings globally for new theaters compared to 47 all of last year. And I think about 25 or 30 of those are in North America, which is way more than it's been, you know, any recent years. So I think, you know, the exhibitors are onto that. You know, you made a point I should have made, so thank you for making it. <laughs> but one of the exhibitors said to me, you know, I could build a new multiplex or I could put an IMAX in and a new multiplex. I don't know what my return on investment is. But a new IMAX, I could model it out because I know what the average per screen is doing. So I think that's part of what's fueling the theater growth as well.
0: As long as the studios keep making these movies with these budgets and these spectacles, there will be that audience, I think. Although that's a question if they can keep affording to make them. Um, I often ask people what I should ask my guests and a very sophisticated dealmaker said to me, why doesn't Apple by IMAX. Makes perfect sense. You guys are a technology company, so are they. You don't you operate in China, they have no problems in China. You are super premium, Apple is premium. They have all these movies that they are making with big stars and big spectacles. They could use the IMAX theaters to push their own movies and it would be a relatively small acquisition that wouldn't alarm regulators like if they bought Disney or Paramount.
1: The company's not for sale Matt, particularly at where the stock price is right now but i've long thought that it would make sense for some technology company cuz when you're doing up to 30% of the box office 20% of the global on less than 1% of the screens if you want to kind of market your content in a first window and you want to look at the brand value i mean the IMAX brand value is enormous for a yeah. company this small but you know i guess if, if they're interested and the price is right, you know, they know where to find us.
0: But no, no active talks, Apple or Amazon? No active talk. <laughs> I suppose you couldn't tell me if, if they were, but... Yeah, I um, wouldn't
1: comment anyway. Yeah, yeah. One of the
0: things people don't realize about IMAX is how important the local language business is in China. And that's been a real shift over the past Five, ten years. The biggest movie of the of in IMAX history, right, is The Wandering
1: Earth Two. Is that correct in China? Yeah, you haven't seen it, Matt? I, I it have was... not. Have you seen it? Is the question. I saw Wandering Earth 1. I have not seen Wandering <laughs> Earth Two.
0: But clearly the the Chinese have figured out how to make big budget spectacle movies that appeal to their audience. How far are we from a Chinese-made movie being a global hit?
1: I think we've, we've already been there. I'm going to screw up the number, but I think the 800 in 2021 did about $800 million, unless my brain is crossing the number. Okay. But
0: that, but not in the U S
1: yeah, it did some, some business in the U S but I'm saying, you know, that year that was the biggest film in the, in the world. Now, of course, there was a pandemic going on in the world, but that's a big number. And we just did 35, we're up to $35 million on a film right now called Creation of the Gods. And as you say, a Wandering Earth 2 was a big success. The issue is, you know, China has control over or regulatory approval over content and issues such as um, violence and sex and things like that. So I think those are, you know, obstacles to that happening. But production budgets are going up, box office is going up. You know, we'll see. I would say one area, though, is we don't only do Chinese local language, but we do Indian and Japanese. And Japanese anime in IMAX has really been breaking out. Maybe it was Dragon Ball, one of those movies. Um, it did more in IMAX in China than it did in Japan. And it did business in Scandinavia, in Canada, in the US. So anime is starting to be local language that breaks out. And I, I think you'll see more of that. This year, we're going to do about 40 local language films, and we'll probably do 20 to 25 percent of IMAX's box office in local language films. So I think you're 20 to 25
0: percent. That's yeah. pretty big for a business that was vast majority Hollywood blockbusters not that long ago.
1: Yeah, I hate to put it this way, because obviously um, the pandemic was tragic at so many levels, but it kind of forced us to refocus. and. I I'm um, play more local language films. And because there were not a lot of Hollywood films, we didn't only play them in the country they were made for, we played them in other countries as well. And they did really well. And we're focused on that business and building that business.
0: So how do you see the IMAX experience evolving in the next three, five, seven years?
1: I think there'll be more use of IMAX DNA, which means whether it's using our cameras or special sound or uh, making special effects for IMAX. I think you'll continue to see more globalization and more foreign language movies not only being released, but being released in other markets, than their home markets. Um, I think you'll see more ancillary content. So we've been experimenting with music and Concerts and live content. Right, you'll see, you'll see more of that. You had a
0: whole division for that. What's the status of that? I know Megan Colligan's no longer there, but you were pushing into those unique experiences, and I feel like I hear less about
1: that. Maybe I'm just not the target audience for a lot of that. No, you're 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 correct in your observation. Um, we've wired um about 250 of our theaters, and we're exploring different kinds of content, but I think. Uh, kind of our wiring got ahead of our content side. So we're trying to figure that out and we're, we're doing a bunch of um, different tests with it. So even next week, we've got the Talking Heads um, being released at TIFF and we're doing a Q&A and some, some IMAX theaters around that. We have a big music project that we're going to announce in the next week. So it's it's still around, but we've slowed it down a little bit.
0: You need to do a Taylor Swift eras tour broadcast so all of her fans can experience the magic of the taylor swift eras show
1: all say about that is (laughs) a great idea
0: oh it sounds like something's in the works all right how many avatars will actually come out
1: i mean i had lunch with (laughs) jim cameron before he went back and he told told me five so he's a man of his word i does he have outlines for all five of them you know like i told you before i would never bet against chris nolan i wouldn't bet against Jim Cameron either. So if he tells me five, my money's on five.
0: Well, I look forward to being 85 years old and wheeling myself to Avatar 5 in you know 2075.
1: As long as it's in an IMAX
0: theater, I'm cool <laughs> with that. All right, Rich. Thanks very much. Appreciate the time. All right. Thanks, Matt. See you soon. All right. We're back with the call sheet. My daily prediction. Craig, you big AMC Plus viewer? I like AMC's shows. I do not subscribe to AMC+. <laughs> you don't? I don't subscribe to Netflix, Matt. I know. <laughs> you I think know. I'm subscribed to AMC+. Plus? <laughs> uh, you're missing out on Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire, Fear the Walking Dead. Um, I do not subscribe to AMC+, either. And as of September 1st, you can now get a bunch of AMC+, shows on the Max streaming service. So is this dipping their toe in the water for a potential merger? That's my prediction. This is a smart move. It's interesting because Rich Greenfield, the analyst was on the show and he got a little shit for suggesting that other services should just sell their shows to Netflix if they care about getting an audience. And people are like, "Wait, why would Disney Plus or other big services like Max sell their shows to Netflix if they wanna build up their own service. But here we see an example of a very small niche service, got like five and 10 million subscribers, going to Max, which has 50 million in the US alone, and saying, listen, you have more scale than us. Let's put our shows there for a couple months. It's a limited thing. It's essentially using Max as a marketing vehicle for the service, and Max gets a bunch of shows And it can better serve its own customers at a time when David Zaslav, the head of the company, is selling off HBO shows to other services like Netflix. So this makes a lot of sense. So my prediction is that this is going to become more of the norm for the other smaller services. Like there's no reason why something like Peacock or Paramount Plus shouldn't have a hub on Netflix for a little while where they could market their shows and say, oh, these are, this is the Paramount Plus hub for a little while. Netflix gets some free shows or a small license fee, and they get the chance to tell everybody that they exist. I think that's going to be the norm.
1: Isn't this all getting a little ridiculous, and this is becoming an assembly line of licensing
0: where, oh, AMC Plus will license shows to HBO, and HBO is licensing shows to Netflix?
1: And it's like everybody's just advertising their shows on other services.
0: Yes, but nobody knows where these shows are to begin with. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the recall rate of which shows on which service is really low. So people already don't know. So you're just like meeting people where they are. What's really going on here is that we're inching towards bundling. That's, I think, what we're seeing the beginnings of. You know, Does it make sense for AMC Plus to exist long term? Probably not. I mean, it exists because AMC Networks is a company. They have to have a streaming presence while they ride out the final days of the linear TV bundle. But at some point, it will probably merge into one of these other companies or have their streaming portal merge into another company. And we're just in this experimental early days phase where things are just jumping around now. And then we're going to ultimately end up with three to four major streamers, just like we did with three to four major broadcast networks. Yeah. And it'll probably be bad for creators and everybody will get squeezed, but that's where we're going. Unless the government gets involved and makes them split production and distribution or prevents these companies from buying each other, that's where we're going. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Rich Gelfond, producer Craig Horlbeck, editor Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. See you later this week.